I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The polarization we are seeing in Canada that is replicated around the world is really scary. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. Performance politics is fueling polarization. Virtue signaling is replacing discussion. Our question, what should we do about polarization in Canadian politics? How are you navigating political disagreements? It's sad to see that a well-educated country has come to this standpoint where you can't be civilized. People are under duress, and when people are under duress, sometimes we look for things to blame. That would often result in, you know, someone yelling at each other and storming off, taking their food, you know, to go, uh, unfortunately. On Sunday, the funeral for former NDP leader Ed Broadbent was held. Though he's not a former prime minister, nor was he opposition leader, he was honoured with a state funeral because of the respect parliamentarians from both sides of the House had for him. When Broadbent retired from politics, in his final speech to the House of Commons, he devoted a portion to a call for civility in debate. We're going to play some of that in just a few moments. He reminded MPs that we have far more in common than not. But many worry we're becoming more polarized in politics and everyday life, more dug in, less willing to consider points of view we disagree with. Our question, what should we do about polarization in Canadian politics? How are you navigating political disagreements? In the last half hour, we'll speak to a psychotherapist about how she's seeing personal relationships affected by politics. And she'll tell us how you know when it's time to draw a line and even cut someone out of your life. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. From CBC Radio, this is Checkup, the podcast, cross-country checkups live broadcast from January 28th, 2024. And let's start with a listener who connected with us via cbc.ca slash aircheck. Christine Hawes is in Halifax. Hi, Christine. Hi, how are you? Good. Let's start with a, a contentious discussion that I hear you had with your sister just a few weeks ago. Tell us about that. Yeah, so basically, like, I think, like, my sister and I are finding ourselves on opposite ends of the political spectrum. And it's usually around issues like, it's usually around culture war issues, which, like, I find are generally distractions anyway, and it keeps us from discussing, like, real problems. Mm-hmm. And when you um, say culture war issues, I, I think I know what you mean, but just give us a couple of examples, not of the not of the discussion, but of the topics. Like, quote-unquote, gender ideology, um, cancel culture, mm-hmm. um things like that like basically uh, there's this contentious topics about books available in schools things like that mm-hmm. um these are kind of the culture war issues that i see are causing a lot of problems yeah and and has anything changed is this uh, is this kind of a were these tension points that you had with your sister for a long time or has that emerged recently 
or more or less just emerged recently. Mm-hmm. I think the issue was around uh, the issues about transgender uh, students, like mm-hmm. uh, LGBTQ inclusion in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, like I feel that some of the rhetoric coming out there in media is kind of harmful towards transgender youth mm-hmm. and they're making perfectly rational people turn away from people who probably do not have a problem. Like my sister, I don't think she's transphobic or anything. Like I don't, um, well, I know she's not, mm-hmm. but I think like she feels like, um, it's being pushed too far. And I think that's kind of something that's being pushed out there in the me- media because, there are people who are really trying to roll rights back. Mm-hmm. And like, I just felt like, I think she's not like, I think she's been, uh, I don't want to say trick, but I don't think she's really looking into what the purpose of this kind of rhetoric is. It isn't about protecting children. It's mm-hmm. about, um, I think it's some people who are trying to make money or try. I don't know if I want to place it on the politicians. I think it's social media influencers that are mm-hmm. stirring this up. And I think politicians are running along with it because yeah. they find they can give votes out of it. So, Christine, it's, you know, it's interesting. You raise a lot of issues that I think are, 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 are very timely. And I should let our listeners know we're speaking to Christine Hawes, who's in Halifax. And she reached us via cbc.ca air, slash air check. And uh, you're listening to Cross Country Checkup. Our question is, what should we do about polarization in Canadian politics? How are you navigating political disagreements? And you can call us at uh, 1-888-416-8333. You know, Christine, what's interesting about what you're saying is that these so-called culture war issues are, are things that have become really heated in certain circles and promoted by some people as being very contentious. A lot of other people feel like it doesn't really kind of affect their their day-to-day lives, but it's obviously created divisions between you and your sister. And so where are you guys now? Like, are you able to have conversations about this? Do you try to debate this or do you just basically put your hands up and say, we just can't talk? I, I've just honestly, I've just put my hands up and said, like, we can't talk. Mm-hmm. Because I I was afraid that it would uh, diminish our relationship, so I'm just trying not to go go there anymore. Mm-hmm. And I mean, sometimes like I don't know, she wants to talk about issues with me because like she feels like like she says she wants like the perspective of somebody who thinks differently so that she can have a more informed opinion. So she mm-hmm. asked me. Um, but I just feel like sometimes she just dismisses what I have to say because she thinks it's crazy or that yeah. I'm stuck in a bubble. And, and and the strange thing is, like, I feel the same way about her because, Absolutely. like, yeah. yeah. And, so um, so that, is, that is the, the I, I think we're going to hear a lot of people talking about that. And we have a couple of guests uh, coming up, a political science professor and a psychotherapist who can uh, give their perspectives, academic perspectives on that. You know, Christine, we have a little bit of a problem with your line. There's a little bit of static on there. So I, I, I'd like to move on, but I'd also like to thank you very much for calling in. And I hope you and your sister find some way to bridge the gap. And it's possible that if you keep listening to the program, especially when we talk to the psychotherapist, you may get some uh, some 
insights, I guess, on how you may be able to navigate that. But thank you very much for calling. Okay, thank you. Our next guest describes herself as a progressive voter in Alberta, and she's have to, had to navigate a fair share of political disagreements. And we've reached Tamara Keller. Uh, Tamara, where are you today? Uh, today I'm in Calgary. I'm okay. In All right. Because I, I heard uh, our producer talking to you yesterday and you were skiing, I think, in British Columbia, but now you're you're in Calgary. So great to uh, to have you on the call. Um, so you've told us that you voted for different parties uh, on the political spectrum, but you do consider yourself a progressive. What are you seeing in your personal life, Tamara, when it comes to the issue of polarization? Well, I mean, there's definitely polarization out there. I live in, I'm a progressive living in Alberta, so that's evident uh, regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, really what I'm seeing is uh, here in Alberta and specifically, people are really, they, they like it's part of their identity, who they're voting for. And there's a lot of really strong ideological attachment mm-hmm. here in Alberta. So um, seeing that and just kind of navigating through that and, and having to understand, you know, kind of the environment that you're living in and, and know, I guess, at the basis of it, like what topics are taboo yeah. and what can you talk about? You know, it's interesting, Tamara. I was out with a, um, a group of friends yesterday for brunch, eight of us, actually. And uh, I'm pretty sure that there's quite a wide range of perspectives among those eight on, on lots of issues. But I mean, there was never really a topic that was off the table, but there also, we never really talked politics. Like I actually, I have my suspicions about how various people in that group vote, but I think we don't wear our politics on our sleeve, like some people in your circles in Alberta, it sounds like you're doing. So So how, how does that work when you talk to, to friends or, or, or coworkers? Do you try to just avoid certain topics because you know it's going to go nowhere or, or how do you deal with it? In a professional setting, I avoid politics altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, never discuss it. Uh, personally, you know, as you're going along, if you've got circles of friends and, you know, a topic comes up or there's something that's in the news and you raise the issue and just start asking questions like, what are your thoughts on that? And sometimes you can draw it out. And essentially, if somebody is showing up, I call it authentically, if they're there, they're, you know, they're expressing opinion, but they're genuinely interested in what yours is, mm-hmm. even if it's different, as long as you're giving respect and it's like, oh, okay, tell me more. Why do you think that? And, and they're doing the same in, in respect for myself. Then we can have that conversation and, and you can, you know, kind of figure out where a person is coming from. Most of the time, even if you disagree and somebody is there authentically of that conversation, they have to really want to be there and they're sincere. If you start asking some questions and you peel back enough layers, you'll find your common ground. And so that for me is, is the key is, you know, an example a few years back was, uh, you know, government funding for food banks was being cut. And I thought, well, this, this needs to be funded. We, we should support that. And, uh, and a friend said, well, no, I don't think so at all. And I was taken aback thinking, you don't support food banks? <laughs> so we started asking questions and having the conversation back and forth. And understanding they support food banks, they just wanted the government to take less of their taxes so they themselves could personally donate to the food bank. We both want to feed people. Mm-hmm. So when you get back to the basics, you find that common ground. We had a different path to get there. Yeah, we're here when live. You can get to oh, sorry, that go ahead. Point, yep. yep. Yeah, when you get to that point, now you're talking about you agree on that, 
let's discuss the ways to get there. And it's less us versus them or a political ideology versus another one. And hey, here's the problem. Let's work together and solve it. And we're just discussing different ideas together. We're live with Tamara Keller. And our question today, what should we do about polarization in Canadian politics? How are you navigating political disagreements? You can call us at 1-888-416-8333 or go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. You know, Tamara, I was uh, in the Edmonton area just before the provincial election and, and talking to voters just kind of picked randomly on the street and asking them how they were going to vote. And I was struck by the number of people who said to me, I don't really care about this issue or that issue or, you know, the the controversy of the day. I voted a certain way my whole life, and that's the way I'm going to vote now. Um, and generally, it was people saying they voted conservative. So as someone who identifies as a progressive in uh, Alberta, do you find that frustrating? I do find that frustrating, particularly if you are able to get into a conversation with somebody that is in that mindset. If they're open to having some conversation, you start asking questions and just, you know, understanding where they're coming from, but also having them think about that a little bit deeper than maybe they historically have. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has the luxury to spend a lot of time thinking about it, unfortunately, but uh you know, really asking about that and some of that resistance to having that conversation is that it is such a part of a person's identity here, mm-hmm. more so than other places. I've lived across the prairies, relatives across the country. In Alberta, it seems that it's just part of your identity. You're yeah. conservative and that that's like any challenge to how you vote is a challenge to who you are yeah. and and and. Yeah, so that's a that's a tough uh, that's a tough conversation to have. <laughs> yeah, it's like trying to debate religion, probably in some situations. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Some really interesting insights. Thanks for having me. We reached Tamara Keller in Calgary today. Our question today: What should we do about polarization in Canadian politics? How are you navigating political disagreements? So we're talking about polarization, not just in the sort of uh, like formal political circles, but the way most of us deal with it, and that is around the dinner table or with friends. Uh, Speaking of polarizing topics, uh, there's probably nothing more polarizing right now than the Israel-Hamas war. And uh, that is going to be the topic of our AMA in the last half hour. In particular, the interim decision that came out on Friday from the International Court of Justice. So if you have a question for our expert, who is a former Canadian ambassador, to Israel, you can call us at 1-888-416-8333 or text us 226-758-8924 or go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. All those ways of communicating with us work both for our main topic of the day and also for our AMA. You can kind of get your question in early and we'll get back to you as we get to the last half hour of the show. As I mentioned at the beginning, Ed Broadband State Funeral is happening right now. It's part of the reason we're holding this conversation today. And, and here's part of his final speech to the House of Commons back in 2005. We share as members of this House 75% of the issues. We are on the same side, or we wouldn't be living in a small liberal democracy. And so often, because of the structure of this institution, and particularly to the question period, we forget that. And we tend to think that those 25% of issues that divide us, and seriously and appropriately divide us, are only what matters. What's more important in many ways is a civilized, democratic, decent country is the 75% of things we have in common. 
That was Ed Broadbent speaking in the House of Commons in 2005, almost 20 years ago, and really sounds like uh, timely advice for today. Let's get some empirical data on whether Canadian politics are getting more more polarized. I want to introduce someone who will be with us uh, for the rest of the first half of our program. Eric Merkley is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Toronto, and he specializes in the causes and consequences of mass polarization in Canada. He is in Toronto today. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. So we heard uh, briefly from Ed Broadbent about the issue of polarization in our politics. Do you think polarization has increased in Canada? Yeah, pol- polarization has increased. Um, now, the scale of which depends on how you define polarization. Um, polarization at its core is just our societies divided, and lots of things can s- divide societies. Um, but one thing we have observed in the data is what's known as affective polarization. Um, that is, if you're a supporter of a political party, you are increasingly dislike the opponents, and this and, and this maps on to left-right politics. So conservatives increasingly dislike liberals, and vice versa. Um, and all of that is rooted in greater ideological difference, um, that supporters of our political parties, they're more divided by ideology, um, you know, their beliefs in the role of government, their beliefs in social policy, culture war issues and the like. Um, so all of that's gone up over time. So on those dimensions, yes, Canada is becoming more polarized, not to like we see in the United States, but but it's it's notable nonetheless. And so this may be difficult to figure out from the data, but I, I'll ask you this. Is, is that polarization over these, sounds like social issues in many cases, because we find those issues important and that's what's driving the polarization and the parties are following what we consider to be important? Or do you think it's the parties that are coalescing around these issues, maybe for strategic advantage or who knows what, but, but you know, they're the ones that are, that are, that are pushing the, the divide? Yeah, that's a really good question. So so some of this is definitely, there are issues on the table now that haven't been in the past uh, and they have greater relevance now. Um, and it, there's probably a little bit of both going on, uh, but, in, but in my own research, I've found that our parties uh, play an important role in polarizing us, that the, the signals that they send, uh, those ideological cues, messages that they, that they send, um, they, they allow their supporters to find themselves in politics. Oh, my party supports this, therefore I support it. Um, and they and they sort themselves, what we call it in, in political science research. Um, and as a result of that sorting process, the, 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 the public becoming more divided, they increasingly dislike each other as well. And there's, a, there's other things that, that exacerbate that too. I think um, elites, uh, by elites, I mean politicians, parties, uh, and their messages, um, they have become uh, angrier, more negative over time uh, for a variety of reasons. I think that... Um, that toxicity is, is is also probably exacerbating things as well. Um, but uh, but I tend to view there's a little bit of both going on. But I tend to view it as uh, our parties are playing an important role in polarizing society. We're here with Eric Merkley, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Toronto, and he specializes in studying mass polarization. Our question today on cross country checkup: What should we do about polarization in Canadian politics? How are you navigating politi- political disagreements in your life? Call us at one. 1- 888-416-8333 or text us at 226-758-8924. Um, Eric, it's good, I think, that people feel that there are political parties that reflect their ideological concerns. Um, on the other hand, 
I assume a lot of us, uh, you know, don't like the idea of of disliking or or being pitted against political opponents. So, is there a way to have parties reflect our ideological feelings without th- this kind of deep sense of division? Uh, yeah, that's that's a great question, and uh, I you know I, I wish I had a definitive answer for that. Uh, but you're absolutely right that you know having important lines of disagreement uh, among our parties is, is important. And it's important because, uh, it, you know, it, it, it allows for voters to have a choice at the ballot box of visions of the country that that, that defer from one another. Um, that, that sort of choice is really important, really valuable. It can mobilize people. Um, but the, the second or a consequence of that, that we all dislike each other because of that sort of division is, is, is unfortunate. Um, and there's not there's not an obvious an obvious solution to this. You know, some of this is is just about normalizing that disagreement. And so, you know, there's a tendency among people to, well, when we disagree to, to shut ourselves down from having those conversations. Uh, and that's not not the right approach. We have to be able to have those conversations because uh, because it's important. Uh, we, we tend we, we learn more about uh, the opposing side by engaging with them in discussion than we do about, you know, just basing our beliefs on some stereotype of political opponents that we get through the news media. Mm-hmm. So having those conversations is important. Um, and like I said, I, I do think there there's something to be said about the civility and the rhetoric that politicians and political parties use um, that, you know, it doesn't help matters when um, they, they try to throw the base red meat by you know with with angry uh, heated rhetoric um that that sort of thing doesn't help matters it doesn't help us have those conversations um so there's and and another thing that we tend to think we are more polarized than we actually are um and so some of that is is because that we we learn about polarization through the news media and the picture we get is pretty bleak um, and so some of that is we need to we need to kind of take a step back and recognize that there's actually more common ground than we than we might expect. Um, we do do think we're more polarized than we really are. Um, and that might you know, that might mean journalists kind of reframing political debate in a, in a slightly different way um, to accentuate those those areas of common ground. So I think there's there's a lot of things that we can do um, at, the, at the level of political parties, the news media, and citizens themselves, uh, but there isn't like a, a solution to the problem of, of, of minimizing that affect of polarization. You blame journalists, I blame professors. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> all right. So stick with there's us. Lots, uh, there's lots of blame to go around. Yeah, no, no, I, no, no blame uh, from me to you at all. Um, you're going to stick with us for the next 15 minutes because I have a question to ask you uh, in particular about social media because I think you have some su- insights into that uh, that people may find surprising. So stand by. Eric Merkley, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Toronto. Our phone number here on Cross Country Checkup, one 416 8333, or you can go to cbc.ca slash check. Let's go to the phones. Kathy Orlando is in Sudbury. Hi, Kathy. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm seeing in the notes here, it says you were not a supporter of the trucker convoy, <laughs> but you took your daughters there to see what it was like. Why did you do that? I, I wanted to get a, a sense for what the messages were, and I, I wanted my daughters to experience uh, an inflection point in Canadian history. That was pretty phenomenal uh, thing to have happened to mm-hmm. have people honking their horns and disturbing the peace like that for 20 straight days on Internet Nation's capital. And and what do you think your daughters learned? Um, uh, 
well, what do I, I think they learned that it, um, it's easy uh, to get people angry. <laughs> it's, um, they learned that it, it takes a lot of work uh, to keep a democracy on track, and um, freedom is a, is a responsibility, and we should take it really seriously. And, and so I'm looking at the notes here, and it's, uh, it mentions Climate Lobby Canada. So is that an organization you're involved with? Yep. Since 2010, I've been training and supporting Canadians who want to uh, learn more about climate policies. Um, and yeah, that's what I do. I, I, I train and support Canadians who want to talk to politicians and their neighbours and anyone about uh, climate policies, evidence-based climate policies. And so did you have any, uh, did you engage in any kind of conversations at all um, when you went to visit to, to look at the convoy uh, close up in Ottawa about climate change? Uh, there wasn't much discussion happening. Just, um, it was not possible. Uh, we didn't go there to discuss climate change with them. We wanted to just experience what it was like and not be drawn into the, um, the anger and the disinformation because it was mostly about COVID actually, mm-hmm. why they were, why that was happening and a lot of disinformation, but quite related to climate change. They're both running parallel, uh, uh, Anti-vaxxer um, disinformation and anti-climate change disinformation is is a running rampant and um, is a threat to our our future, and yeah. we we have to navigate that very carefully and thoughtfully. One of the things I just signal our listeners to this, uh, and and not you because you're fine, uh, Kathy, uh, in this call, but just to, for our listeners, you know, we're not on this edition of the program going to be going through the debate on any particular issue. We're talking about whether we have the ability to debate these issues at all. And so, Kathy, on climate change, I'm not asking you about the, the evidence behind it, but I am asking this. You must have had, I assume, situations where you're talking to somebody, maybe in your personal life, where they just absolutely fundamentally disagree with you on, on the basic premise, on whether the science exists to support um, the climate crisis. How do you handle that? Well, that has dissipated, but I would like to go back about a decade on, on a person who was an older gentleman who just thought climate change was a hoax. And um, he was very respected in my community, and he came up to me at an event that I was hosting, uh, and, he, and he started talking about it being a hoax. And I turned to him and I said, if I increased your blood CO2 by 150%, what do you think would happen to your physiology? And and then I said, well, that's basically what we've done to the Earth's atmosphere. And in that moment, I just saw the light bulb go off in mm-hmm. his in his eyes. Um, but what what we need to do now is to address deflection of climate solutions, delay of climate solutions, division of climate solutions, and doomerism uh, with regards to climate solutions. And and I don't think you do that by telling people they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Like your first caller said, is you have to find common ground. You have to f- meet people where they are at. Like I did with that gentleman who vehemently denied the climate crisis was real. Mm-hmm. You have to find that common ground, and then and then work your way forward. Uh, we you, you, yeah, it, and it does work. We use a a motivational interviewing technique where you where you. Uh, ask people questions like, where did you get that information? And what do you think if we did this? And what do you think if we did that? Right. Would you? Yeah, so there, it's, it's slow, uh, but that's the way it goes. Okay. Kathy, thank you very much. Thank you. Bye, Ian. 
what should we do about polarization in Canadian politics and in our personal lives? How are you navigating political disagreements? Our number here on Cross Country Checkup is 1-888-416-8333. I'm Ian Hanamansing, and we're live from CBC Vancouver on the CBC Network across the country and the CBC Listen app. Uh, Stefano Babich is in uh, Sun Peaks, British Columbia, the ski resort. Hi, Stefano. Hi, St- Stefano. Hi, Ian. How Stefano. Are you? Uh, good, good. So uh, how do you feel about polarization in Canada these days? I feel that uh, after 14, actually 15 years that I have been here, COVID changed a lot. And mm-hmm. independent of whatever is the side, I wouldn't have expected a prime minister labeled at certain co- co- community, basically, people that were doubting about the vaccine. He said, you know what, who is not vaccinated is racist and misogynist. Yeah, I don't think he said that people who weren't vaccinated were racist and misogynist, though, did he? Yes, on the French, uh, on the Quebec TV, he said it like that. Hmm, okay. Something that hurt me, because honestly, I don't need to be vaccinated or non-vaccinated, but if he was saying who is not vaccinated is ignorant, who is not vaccinated is a team for that, I would have understand the kind of conversation. But when, when he said that who is not vaccinated is racist and misogynist, this is, to me, something that the, disappointed me because a real leader shouldn't do that. This yeah. is the first moment that I doubt a bit about Canada. Okay, so I, then, I, I, as I say, I, I, I didn't hear that quote. It doesn't, I don't recognize him saying those things about those who aren't vaccinated. But, but, to, but let, let me make this point to, or ask you this. That aside... How do you feel about political polarization in Canada? The dialogue doesn't exist. It seems like the people that are trying to tell, hey guys, something is not as easy as it is, we should try to be able to um, dialogue about, like the same thing that the professor said. And for me, it started with COVID and we can continue with everything. Because after COVID, if you were saying, hey, you know what, maybe we we shouldn't send so many weapon to Ukraine because potentially we should find a peace instead of sending more weapons. But if you said peace, then you can't say it, you are a pro-Putin. And in the moment that you say, hey guys, Israel is killing way too many uh, civilians, and then, oh, you are an anti-Semite. Every time that somebody is putting an opinion that is not the opinion on wherever is the, I would say the mainstream media, but it's not really about mainstream media. It's more about the political scenario and uh, what is the the direction of the country that you are. And it's not only about Canada. Mm-hmm. It's clearly up, happening anywhere. And honestly, I am, I am so happy that I'm talking right now because I listened to CBC for so many years. Then during COVID, I was like, oh, okay, let's figure it out what else is around because I was literally worried about one line and one line only. And at this point... If we have different, uh, um, how do you call it? It's not really, I don't call it party. I yeah. just literally think about opinions. Yeah. There is oh. a good chance to create dialogue yeah. and to do what you, you are doing right now. Yeah. And allow people to be, okay, let's talk. And these things is disappearing also because, in my point of view, also because of government. 
Well, I, I appreciate your call. And uh, as I say, I can't uh, verify your original quote, but uh, I, I appreciate also what you said about this program. This program is all about allowing people to have an opportunity to express their opinion all the time, but particularly this week as we talk about polarization in Canadian politics at one 416 Lots of calls coming in, which is great, but I want to go back to Eric Merkley for a couple of moments, the U of T professor who studies mass polarization. And Eric, the first thing that really struck me about that last call is as he went through issues like COVID and Ukraine and Israel Hamas, my goodness, like those are really issues where people are very quick to go to their respective corners and say there is no room for debate. And I wonder, I mean, we've always had uh, hot button issues like that, but I wonder if there's something about the last three or four years that has just heated up polarization and the political discourse uh, more than usual. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think there's anything necessarily about the last three or four years. Like, there's always been tough issues um, like this mm-hmm. um, through history. I think the the difference is that social media, with the, with the advent of social media, that sort of call-out culture example, um, I think that's more, you know, shutting down debate by labeling X response anti-Semitic or, you know, or whatever. I think that has gone up over time. Um, because of social media, it's just it's very easy to to shut down conversations that way um, through those sorts of technologies. Yeah. Uh, but we've always had tough issues, and so it's um, you know finding ways to have have those discussions and to have have discussions that that don't get shut down in that fashion. I think that's that's the key to to dealing with polarization. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, the Middle East, for example, is not something which has emerged as a hot button issue in the last uh, six months. Uh, former Yugoslavia, the you know Cold War, there have been lots of things over the years. Abortion, I mean, I could just keep going on and on. So so mm-hmm. it, it's nice to have your kind of, uh, to put it in, in perspective in terms of uh, history. Um, so perfect segue to the last question that I wanted to ask you about, and that is from your academic studied perspective, the link between social media and polarization, because most people I talk to immediately go to social media and say, that's what's to blame. Yeah. That's what's divided us so much. Your view? Yeah, I don't I don't think that's quite right. And and, and th- so this is this is it's complex. Um, we what we've seen is that polarization has gone up gradually over time since about the 1980s, um, that it's just been kind of a slow trend over time. That's true in the United States too, although there's been some escalation since 2009 south border. Um, but you know, it it, it it was accelerating long before the advent of social media. Uh, so polarization's been under the surface for a very long time. I think social media allows it to be more visible than we've ever seen it before. Um, you know, a lot. You know, bef- you know, back before the social media. Um, we might not observe this in our day-to-day life because maybe we don't like talking about politics. It's it's just not it's not something that comes up, um, so we don't see it. But that 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 sort of superheated rhetoric, the extremism, all of that is much more visible on social media. We see it now, mm-hmm. so we're exposed to it more. Um, and 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 journalists cover it, and 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 so on, and and so I think it's it's more about visibility more than it is about it social media accelerating polarization. Um, there's some there's some evident good evidence in the U.S. that suggests there is a polarizing influence. Some evidence that suggests that there isn't. Um, the 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 research on this is is very very mm-hmm. complex. One last question Thanks. for you, um, um, but uh, uh, you know, but it is important to note that that it is a yeah. 
Sorry, okay. I, you know, we have a bit of a delay here, just the way the internet is working. So I apologize for what sounded like me interrupting you, because I think I did interrupt you. But anyway, one last question for you, and that is, um, from my non-academic perspective, I kind of feel like in the United States, something that is driving polarization um, is uh, cable news channels, is that there, you have a group of people right. watching Fox and a group of people watching MSNBC, and it's two completely mm -hmm. different versions of political discourse. And if you're watching that all day, how can that do anything but uh, create a deeper divide? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's complex, though, even then, because polarized people tend to watch Fox News. And mm -hmm. so the, the, the causal arrow can go in both directions. But I think you're right. Um, the U.S. is a much more fragmented media environment. Lots of proliferation of ideological and partisan news, um, not just cable news, but Internet news and, and the like. In Canada, we don't have nearly the same diversity of media content. And so it, it, it prevents us from kind of getting that supercharged dose of polarization through the news. Um, so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Well, I'm glad you study this, and I'm glad that you've shared your time with us, Eric. Uh, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me on. Eric Merkley, an assistant professor of political science at the University of Toronto, specializing in mass polarization. You're listening to Cross Country Checkup. We're live. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing, and our question is, what should we do about polarization in Canadian politics? Uh, Maria is calling us from Swift Current, Saskatchewan. Hi, Maria. Hey, Ian. How do you pronounce your last name? Lewins. Lewins, all right. And uh, how do you feel about uh, polarization, what you see in your personal life and uh, more broadly? Well, I see a, where to start. Um, <laughs> I think a lot gets lost in definitions. I know I had a conversation once and I was suggesting, well, China's not actually a communist country. And then it was a bit of a debate. And we realized, like, we have different ideas about what communism actually means. Um, and, you know, I see right now it's really sad because, say, in our province, we're having something about the teacher strike and, you know, people are saying, well, they don't care and whatnot. And it's really unfair. Um, but I think it's distracting us from a lot of the root causes. You know, um, we, we've known and it's historically documented that there's always been this divide and conquer attitude. I mean, we have to remember eight billion people in this world most of those 8 billion are peasants that don't want war. I feel like, you know, we talk about the root causes, and I feel like capitalism and this monetary system is just one big Ponzi scheme. And if we really deconstruct it, it is. Yeah, and but, I but here's the thing, here's the thing Maria. Slavery. Yeah, so here's the thing, Maria. What I, what I don't want to do on this program, because we, we have lots of shows where we can zero in on a debate over any particular topic. But, but on this program this week, we want to talk about, about polarization. So less about the details of, of your views of the economic system, but more, I guess I'm curious, when you express those kinds of views with, with friends or, I don't know, work colleagues, um, how do those conversations go? Good. I, I guess I'll divert. So one problem, I think, is there's a lot of self-righteousness and lack of humility. Um, I think when we look at history, we want to pick sides. And then I think it really blinds our vision to really analyze the facts and question um, in history. And we're caught in this good guy, bad guy mentality um, where we should really be looking at stuff with curiosity 
instead of judgment. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I think about um, how sometimes I read a book about behavioral psychology and they said, you know, sometimes we latch onto our stories as a form of self-protection. Mm-hmm. So if we believe a certain side, even though we're presented counter facts, we might just latch onto our story more because we have such low self-worth that our stories are protecting us. Yeah. Well, so one I last think question. this is also a mental health issue, the fact that we can't have these civil conversations. Yeah. One last question for you. Can you think of an example, um, I don't know, over the last couple of years where somebody said something to you and you thought, wow, that, that actually, I'm going to change my view on, long-held view on something because I hadn't thought about it till they said that to you. You're still there, I hope. Yes, I'm still there. I'm just um, thinking. I mean, I had a drinking problem for a few years, so my memory's a little cloudy. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> and it's a tough question, but I guess I, you know, it's like I just, in terms of you know, you you talking about how people have these, you know, sort of they stick to their ideas, but I wonder. If, if yeah, it's just interesting. I guess we can all wonder, like we're all, most of us are pretty sure about what we think is right. And I guess one of the tests is how often do we hear from somebody and think, okay, you know what, maybe I was wrong on this thing and it's time for me to, to change my view. And so you don't have to have an example off the top of your head. I just wondered if you did. No, but I'm, now you make me think, I'm sure I'll come up with about 20 when I hang up the phone. <laughs> I do that all the time. After I sign off on the program, about 15 minutes later, I think I should have said this. Uh, so it happens to all of us. Thank you very much for calling in. Thanks. Our number is one 416 What should we do about polarization in Canadian politics? How are you navigating political disagreements? Let's bring in someone who has a, a different perspective on the conversation we're having so far, but a really relevant one. Laura Cavanaugh is a practicing psychotherapist and professor of psychology and behavioral sciences at Seneca College. And she actually will be with us for the next 45 minutes or so to uh, comment and react to some of your calls. She's in Toronto this afternoon. Hi. Hi, Laura. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Uh, what are you hearing from people in your practice, um, or or do you hear from people where politics are affecting their personal relationships? Absolutely, and I, I mean, I think it's interesting when we're hearing the, the the people calling in. You can tell it's touched a nerve with people. You know that no one's going like, "Oh, I'm, I'm not really sure what you're talking about." It feels like <laughs> we're all getting along better than ever. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think um, someone said it earlier. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't catch the caller's name, but mm-hmm. you know that that since COVID, um, yeah. I have found in my practice that people are feeling like. Um, uh, political disagreements and ideological disagreements are not just sort of these like theoretical abstract um, ideas to debate, but rather like things that are affecting their own life, their own relationships, their own um, interpersonal well-being um, in ways that, you know, are quite profound and uh, and not not pleasant, you know, for most mm-hmm. people. Um, so absolutely, I think this is becoming more and more of an issue for people. Um, and, and lots of people are, are thinking about like, is there a way to walk this back? It just feels like we're going in one direction and, and is it even possible to, to change that? Yeah, I think, you know, medical issues aside, COVID has changed mm-hmm. our society in so many ways. And so as a psychotherapist, 
How do you help people try to walk things back when they, they identify to you divisions that have come out of particularly the pandemic? So, for example, you know, I, I know that when people started expressing strong opinions on vaccines, either pro or anti, or strong opinions about lockdowns or strong opinions about even how COVID is spread. And then they started questioning the credibility of others, the good faith of others. And I can just imagine how that would fester within a family setting. How do you as a psychotherapist deal with that? Yeah, you know, I I think what you're saying, you know, is really relevant because, um, you know, we talk about like hot cognition and cold cognition and, and hot cognition is really when your emotions are in control. And when, but that doesn't last forever. You know, we don't stay at that heated point forever. And often when we have the chance to kind of sit back and, and reflect um, and our, our our cold cognition, our, our sort of cool logical reasoning is, is at the helm, um, sometimes we regret some of the things that we said, right? Maybe not Maybe not that we changed our point of view even necessarily, but that we wish, uh, I wish I hadn't like come on so strong or or it wasn't necessary to, um, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to call those names or, or to, um, um, you know, attack the person so, so aggressively. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I always say to people like, if you want to walk something back, you're allowed to, you know, and, and in the same way, I often, um, uh, I have a friend who often reminds me, like, people are allowed to be wrong. Uh, we're also <laughs> allowed to be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it's. Uh, it, I think it takes a tremendous amount of courage to try to mend a relationship. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're in entire agreement with the person. But a lot of people have a fear that... Um, if they apologize, it will be rejected. And I really rarely see that happen. And in fact, like, even when it's not... Um, the relationship is not entirely restored. I find that people are always grateful that they made amends. And then, you know, the other part is that people feel like if I if I apologize, you know, this is um, will this affect my sense of self? You know, there's this feeling sometimes that that's a threat to my self image. And I think it's important to, um, you know, even though our beliefs and our core values are deeply held, you know, to recognize that all of us are are complex individuals and, you know, changing your mind or changing your stance or even just changing your approach, not necessarily mm-hmm. changing your mind. You're allowed to do that. Yeah. I have lots more questions for you, Laura. And I also want you to react to some of the callers we have. And as I've mentioned, you're going to be with us until the bottom of the next hour. So thank you very much. We're live with Laura Cavanaugh, psychotherapist and professor of psychology and behavioral sciences at Seneca College. Our question today, what should we do about polarization in Canadian politics? How are you navigating political disagreements? Our number 1-888-416-8333. Or you can connect via cbc.ca slash aircheck. Andrew Stewart is in London, Ontario. Hi, Andrew. Uh, I wonder if Andrew's still on the line. Try one more time. Andrew? Okay, move on to the next call. Philip Roberts is in Cochrane, Alberta. Hi, Phillips. Hi, Philip. Hey, how's it going today? Good, good. So, uh, you, uh, yeah, you're, you're in Alberta, and I see in the notes here you describe yourself as conservative and oil and gas guy. So what's it been like for you uh, having conversations about those who disagree with you? Well, it's just funny, like, you know, if you go back to the very origins of, like, why you become politically active, or like when I was a kid, I didn't pay taxes, I thought liberals were great, you know. 
And then as you go up, you see that, oh, wait a minute, there's, how do we pay for this? And oh, it comes off my check, you know? So for me, it was just natural. Like, I was like, oh, well, I have to balance my checkbook. This party's all about fiscal responsibility. Mm-hmm. So you kind of pick a, just a natural choice would be the conservatives for me, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's just funny, like, how people go about picking their choices. Like the liberals, it just it makes no common sense to me. All right. Okay. So you have your, your political views. What I'm curious about in the context of today's show, Philip, is do you have debates at all, conversations? Are you within your friend circle or at work around at all people who have a different political perspective? Yeah. Like we had people for dinner at our house once and they work in the tourism industry in Banff. Mm-hmm. So they, uh, you know, tourists come in, they run bed and breakfast, they do very well. And, you know, it was talking about the carbon tax and they came over and said, yeah, it's good. There'll be no more oil and gas. You know, that's, it's a green environment. That's, that's good for the economy and we, we can make it work. I just had to tell them, hey, like, this is my industry. You know, it's paid for my whole existence till this day. Like, you should just, you know, mind who you're talking to because this is an oil and gas house and this is, you know, paid for my life. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, fair enough, you know. And then COVID came and the restrictions on tourism came. And all these properties that they had were bed and breakfast. Mm-hmm. They couldn't rent out. So, so it was interesting to see how the, it was on the other foot now. Like their industry was cut out, the tourism, there's no more tourism. So then they couldn't pay their mortgages, you know, mm-hmm. so they went for the government and all the, the whole process. But it's just, it was interesting to see how when the shoe was on the other foot, like, because yeah. they were so easy to get rid of oil and gas in, at my house in the conversation. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm so happy that you called. I, I always appreciate the people who take the time to call into the program and, and the insights we get into the way people see the world, right? And, and, and how you described to the, the friends of yours, or I don't know if they're friends, but people who came over for dinner, that <laughs> yeah. th- th- this is an oil and gas house. Like that, that's, that's how, you know, that's how you made your living. That's what built the house. And, and, and you know, understand when we have conversations, you, you know, understand where you are. So I, so, yeah. I mean, but, but then like, does it get, so if, you know, if they were advocating getting rid of oil and gas, I can see how threatening and, and frustrating that would sound. I feel like a lot of people might have a more kind of moderate view of, you know, of oil and gas, like not, not you know, let's have it or let's not have it, but maybe try to wean ourselves away from that. So if I came to your house for dinner, Philip, and if I were to say, yeah. even just to play devil's advocate, well, you know, uh, maybe we should reduce our dependency on oil and gas. What would you say to me? And I don't, I mean, would you say, don't even have that conversation? Or would you say, tell me more? I'd be like, sweet, let's do it. Like, just, <laughs> like if... If you guys had a better way, like if windmills worked and if solar worked, yeah. oil and gas, we, I, everyone, it's not like we're like, no, oil and gas yeah. is the only way. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that's my, I'm not saying that's my point of view, Philip. I'm just wondering how the conversations go, yeah. that's all. Well, I would be for, I'd be for it. I'd be yeah. like, hey, show us how it's done. Like, lead yeah. by example. Like, I don't know why. I'm not like pro-oil and gas, but it's just, I work in it. Yeah. I guess I am pro, because I work in it. But if you guys have a better solution, then yeah. sure, let's do it. But yeah. Windmills and solar panels aren't it. Yeah. Like, I, and let me just, again, I, I need to, I, I need to clarify. I was just setting up a hypothetical there, right? So it's, yeah, I'm, I know you are. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, hypothetically I'm not, I'm not, I just think it's funny though. Like, yeah. All right. Well, um, yeah, good to know. Maybe one day I will go and, uh, and have dinner you at your come place. You can dinner whenever you want. Well, I won't do it. I, I won't do it when it's minus. Nice I won't do it when it's minus forty, which it was about two weeks ago in Cochrane. So no, we'll, we'll get a solar powdered barbecue. It'll okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Nice. Thank <laughs> you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much, Colin. I appreciate it.
Uh, I think Andrew Stewart, who's in London, Ontario, might be on the line now. Hi, Andrew. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? Oh, pretty well, pretty well. Uh, I want to talk to somebody in about three minutes about the state funeral for Ed Broadbent. So uh, I want to cover some ground quickly here if we can. Andrew, how do you feel about Mm -hmm. the political polarization issue? Oh, it's it's really hard to watch. Um, I don't know. I'm a dual citizen and I was born in Canada and we moved to the United States to New England when I was like 10. So Mm -hmm. 20 years of my life were spent growing up in the United States and I moved back to Canada at the end of 2018 during the Trump administration and even like living somewhere very, I guess you would say very liberal United States. It was kind of watching that election was extremely polarizing for the country. And I moved back to Canada kind of thinking, oh, you know, I can get away from all the frustrations of that. And uh, personally, but over the past few years, ever since moving back, it's like I'm watching the same thing that happened to the United States happen in Canada. Hmm. And it's, I don't know, it's like remarkable because I think it's just weird to relive the kind of the same paradigm again, where you just everybody's starting to dislike each other based on more feeling rather than fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's, it's a very slippery slope, and I think it's something that we kind of need to have more opportunity for people to learn more about the government in a very like tactile way um, rather than through like secondhand stories. Cause like, even when I moved back to Canada, I would be talking to a lot of people and like American government terms would be tossed in with Canadian government terms. Hmm. And for me, it would be very confused. I'm like, does, does everybody here know how like certain laws work? Like I, personally, I was a little clueless, but I think it's, it's, for me, it's hard to watch it all kind of happen again, yeah. especially on the same continent. You well, know, g- given given your experience having been in the United States, and you're obviously uncomfortable with where things are headed here. Um, we have a little less than a minute, but but do you try to reach out to people with different points of view? Do you gently debate them? Do you challenge them? How do you how do you navigate all that? I think one of the most important things is to educate yourself with facts. And really try to see, like, am I being told something that's an opinion or is this something that I can actually go and find metrics on, you know? Mm -hmm. And always try to, like, have a conversation that's always rooted in just trying to find a solution rather than win. Mm -hmm. I think there's a really easy set where politics can kind of become a sports game where it's my team versus your team. As long as we win, it's fine because we won. But, like, what are the consequences of winning? Yeah. You know, well like, said. There... And, uh, and I do think we're seeing more and more people who do see it as a, you know, as a, as a game. And it's not a game. It's way more important than that. Thank you very much mm-hmm. for calling. I appreciate uh, your, your perspective. Oh, thank you very much. I love your show. Great. We, uh, you're listening to Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hannah Mansing. We have half an hour left on our main topic. What should we do about polarization in Canadian politics? Then we switch to our Ask Me Anything. We have a former Canadian ambassador to Israel, and he'll be here to answer any questions you may have about the International Court of Justice interim judgment that came out 
on Friday. Our simulcast on CBC News Network this week has been preempted by the state funeral for Ed Broadbent. He passed away earlier this month. Broadbent was a leader of the NDP for 14 years, largely in the 1980s. He was an MP from 1968 to 1990, and then he came back briefly between 2004 and 2006. Catherine Tunney will update us on the funeral in just a moment. She's a reporter with CBC's Parliament Hill Bureau. But first, I want to play a little bit of tape from the funeral. Uh, here's current NDP leader Jagmeet Singh and Manitoba's NDP Premier Wab Canoe. I said I want to be Ed Broadbent when I grow up because you look at Ed's life, you see a life of incredible dedication to his vision for a better world. I remember when I first became leader, I was told I could give him a call. I can tell you every single time I called, he said yes. Anytime I needed help, he said yes, whether it was campaigning, whether it was for advice, he was always there for me. But as a, as a new leader that maybe didn't fit the image of what people thought of when they thought of a a national federal leader. I remember in particular after winning the by-election in Burnaby, we were thinking about who would do the introduction for the first time that I would officially be a leader and as also a member of parliament. And Ed Broadman did that and he made it clear with his respect that he commanded someone not just respected by New Democrats but all Canadians, he made it clear that I belonged. And I'll always be eternally thankful for that. One of our final conversations came right after he had released his book. He told me that he was proud of the work that we were doing. He's proud of the fact that we brought in dental care, that this is continuing the legacy of Tommy Douglas, making sure we provided real support to real people. He wanted me to do a lot more and a lot faster. Very new Democrat of him. (laughs) And he also wanted to make sure that I never let the liberals off the hook. Also, very new Democrat of him. It's hard to believe I'll never have a chance to talk to him again. (laughs) To hear his advice, to learn from his wisdom, we will miss him. We are so fortunate that he chose to spend his life in pursuit of his vision and his hope for justice and fairness for all. We will never forget him. And Ed, we won't let you down. And you're still who I want to be when I grow up. At a time of angry populists around the globe, of separate social media ecosystems that are worlds apart, of identity politics that obscure the simple truth that we are all related. Ed stood for the opposite. Ed stood for compassion in public. He stood for thoughtful leadership. And perhaps most importantly, he stood for the vision that we are one country, that we can use good means to achieve good ends, that we don't have to appeal to our darkest impulses, that we can have faith in our fellow Canadians. I hope for the sake of our country that more of our leaders speak to us Canadians the way Mr. Broadbent did by appealing to our better angels. Ed Broadbent, I hope we will see you again.
Up live on CBC Radio, we just heard from the Premier of Manitoba, Wab Kanu, and the current leader of the NDP, Jagmeet Singh. And we're joined now by Catherine Tunney, a reporter with CBC's Parliament Hill Bureau. She is in Ottawa and she is watching the uh, state funeral for us. And uh, what other speakers did have we heard from so far today? Well, obviously we heard from those two men who you could just hear and that who, who I feel like, you know, felt so grateful to be able mm-hmm. to talk to Ed and, and get, um, you know, Ed advice from him um, as they, you know, th- as they become leaders in, in, the, in their own right. Um, we also heard, that, I think, a very touching moment. They had um, kind of a slide to a presentation where you got to hear from former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, not in, in the crowd, unfortunately, but he really got to, he talked so fondly uh, of someone who was very much his rival back in the day, right? They, they clearly not sitting on the same side um, in, in Parliament Hill, but spoke about how wonderful and decent Ed Broadbent was and, and how you know much of a giant he was in Canadian politics. We also you know, heard a clip there from former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, also someone who didn't sit in the same party with him, but, but spoke so eloquently about what it was, <laughs> it was like to, at the end of the day, yes, you fought in the House of Commons, but you know, you compared it to a hockey game. You, you know, you fight on the ice, but then, but then you put the gloves down when, it, when it's all over. So a lot of really touching and, and moving um, moments today um, at the state funeral, remembering Ed Broadband for, for who he was, a, a decent um, politician as he's being remembered. Yeah, you know, I think people do tend to be very nice, obviously, at funerals. But I would say that even during Ed Broadbent's life, it would not be surprising to hear the leader of a Conservative Party, the leader of a Liberal Party, former Prime Minister, say nice things about him. He was tremendously uh, highly respected, even during election campaigns. And, And Catherine, maybe I'll end with that, because some of our... Listeners here uh, either may be too young to remember Ed Broadbent when he was in federal politics or just kind of forget it. It's been a long time. And I just wonder, as you've watched the the state funeral that's underway right now, any other last thoughts about uh, kind of your reflections on him and and the, the legacy that he's left? Yeah, I mean, I'll put myself in, in that camp. I mean, uh, I'm a lover of Canadian politi- politics, but was not was not necessarily around um, when when you know the free free trade deal was being was being um, you know disp- uh, debated. Mm-hmm. I got to say, leaving you know coming away from this, like this is a, if I was a politician, this is the kind of funeral I would want to have. You had people from different um, stripes coming and talking about how principled you were and how decent you were. And, but more than that, just not like, oh, he's a nice guy that, you know, the Prime Minister um, heading into the ceremony, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said, Canada is better because of uh, Ed Broadbent. And I think, you know, that's, you know, any politician who's either there, there are many um, who, are, who are kind of leaving the church right now um, or, or who are watching. I think that's the takeaway. But, you know, I, I would hope that they want to be remembered as, as decent um, men and women who, who are, you know, fighting for, for Canadians. You can disagree on, on how you do that. But at the end of the day, everyone is, is talking so so finally about a man who, who spoke for, you know, um, for Canadians who, who fought for social justice. And that is such a terrific point. Imagine if every politician asked him or herself, will this country be better for me having served? That would be a really, you know, interesting test for them. Also, Catherine, I appreciate how delicately you explained that you're much younger than I am. So <laughs> this is all, you know, trying to think back to uh, Ed Broadbent's <laughs> legacy. You see it through different eyes. And we appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Catherine Tunney, a reporter with CBC's Parliament Hill Bureau. Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. 
You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing. And uh, as I said earlier, the, the state funeral for Ed Broadbent is one of the things that motivated us to, to cover this topic. And, the, you know, what Catherine said about what came up in that funeral uh, is the perfect way of getting back into the conversation on these questions. What should we do about polarization in Canadian politics? How are you navigating political disagreements? In a few minutes, I'll go back to Laura Cavanaugh, a psychotherapist with Seneca College. She's a professor there. And uh, she has some interesting insights on how to how to deal with polarization when it affects uh, family relationships, personal relationships. But uh, let's go to the phones right now at one eight 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 four one six eight three three three. Patrick McCann is calling us from Vancouver Island. Hi, Patrick. Ian, long time listener, uh, uh, first time caller. Fantastic. I, I have to say, uh, you know my. Uh, I'd like to say that I'm a fan, but my fiance is absolutely in love with you. She loves okay. you, and I so I'm so I'm I'm it's a little bit, you know, sketchy right. for me. But okay. talking to you, but all right. But, well, uh, uh, let's 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 you know we can talk to the psychotherapist about all of that in just a moment. Uh, <laughs> but but for now, Patrick, let's talk about polarization. Yes, yeah. I'm just calling because I just uh, found that even before COVID. Um, you know, like I'm from a, a really small uh, rural town uh, in Ontario, but I now live on Vancouver Island. And I found, like, I grew up with um, people who sort of lean to the right. Um, but I I could always, you know, I could always have a, a debate with them and we would still be friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I go back now, uh, you know, like, like my uh, riding where I'm from, it's represented by... Uh, uh, Cheryl Gallant. And what I'm finding now uh, is it's, you can't have a discussion anymore. Hmm. Um, because, and, and, and uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I always thought like in, with debating, when you debate someone, um, the point is not to win or lose. The point is to understand the other person. That's, I think, I think that's what a good debate does. And I mm-hmm. enjoy a good debate. Um, but it's not like when you just put in your own personal anecdotal evidence and you put that as facts, like it's your opinion and it's not facts. It just, it's hard to, um, it's hard to have a good debate. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I find that really frustrating. And, and what I also, um, uh, I, I, like what I'm getting from now is that, there's this thing where I think even people who I, you know you know I'm, I'm a CBC listener so I'm mm-hmm. I lean a little to the left, <laughs> but uh, I just find that uh, you know there's this thing well we should be more understanding of of conservatives and whatever and and I'm like I'm, I like that I'm willing to do that but it's not reciprocated and that's frustrating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I you know I Patrick I I also love debating. I, 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 you know, our, the house I grew up in with my parents, it was all about debating issues. And to an extent, the house I'm in now with my wife and although my sons are adults now, but still, I, I love debating, but I do, I do wonder about, you know, certain circles outside the house. Like, can I, can I still debate issues? So what do you do? Do you, do you just give up or, or do you gently try to, to engage in debate? Well, there's two things here. Like one, I, 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 I you know what? Like I, there's people I don't, I don't 
follow anymore on Facebook. I just can't do it anymore. I can't, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not going to, like, it's just, I don't, and we, you know, we would, you know, when we were growing up, we'd sit by a campfire, have a beer, and we we could do, like, we could talk it out, mm-hmm. you know? But we just, it just doesn't seem like that's possible. The other thing, too, is now, like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a teacher, and what I find, too, is I get very nervous. Uh, like, the, I, I think debating is a good learning tool. It's mm-hmm. an excellent learning tool. But, like, I just, I, I am really walking a tightrope on, uh, because I'm worried that parents are going to, like, there's going to be a backlash on, from parents that they're not, like, that they're not, because their view isn't being represented or it's not represented as well or whatever, mm-hmm. then um, there's going to be backlash on that. So you can't have, it just, it just seems to me you can't have good debate. So I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if you like the whole per- like if you can't talk to the other person, if you're just shut down and you can't even talk to the other person, then what are we going to do here? Like, how are we going to solve these problems? Yeah, I, I, I hear your frustration and I, I feel it. And I'm, I really appreciate that you called in, Patrick. Thank you very much. Yeah, my pleasure. All the best. This is Cross Country Checkup. One eight 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 four one six eight three 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 is our number. Laura Cavanaugh is uh, with us right now. You may have heard her last hour, a psychotherapist and a Seneca College professor. And, and Laura, I, I want to ask you a version of of the kind of dilemma that Patrick finds himself in. So it's not exactly what he talked about, but but I, I wonder what would you say as as you deal with with people, whether it's students or or people in your in your practice, who are having disagreements with others. They find it frustrating. They're pretty sure that the other person they're having the disagreement with is wrong. Um, Like, should they just like avoid a topic, walk away from the relationship or find a way to have that debate that they, they, they really want to win actually? Well, I think it depends even on what your intent is, you know, and I, I think, um, uh, uh, Patrick, the last caller mentioned social media. I'm not sure that engaging online, um, which is a very toxic environment and a very polarized environment, um, I'm not sure that that's all that helpful. That's that that's I don't think that's particularly helpful. And I often encourage um, people, you know, clients or students, or um, sometimes I have to remind myself, you know, that uh, action gives us more relief than anger, right? And so arguing with someone online is really, we're just kind of venting our frustrations and not <laughs> in a way that's not going to change people's minds, right? Yeah. And so volunteering for your candidate or, you know, getting involved with a community group that that um, works on an issue that you feel really strongly about will probably make you feel better, you know, certainly more than arguing with someone on Facebook. Mm-hmm. But when it's real life, you know, what, what, um, uh, both the past callers expressed is something that I'm hearing. Um, it's that we're, we're kind of afraid to talk, but we don't really, it's not that we don't want to, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think there's this fear, well, the other side doesn't want to engage with me or they'll, you know, they'll call me names or, and I think the, that fear comes from a real place. I mean, if you look at the kind of dialogue online and people throwing around words like dumb and crazy and sheep and deplorable, I mean, these are real words that people are describing, you know, the people on the other side of the aisle on both sides, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's no wonder that people are afraid to have a conversation. And so I like to talk about, listen, Let's talk about how to disagree <laughs> as much as um, what we disagree about, right? And I think, you know, when we're trying to, whether you're trying to change someone's mind or not, but even even if you are, um, 
the approach is the same, right? Like attacking someone and and getting out there really aggressively and, you know, opening with like, I can't believe you think that, <laughs> um, you know, that engages our emotional response and the person is going to become defensive. And the way that we um, can change hearts and minds, but also like just the way we can open up dialogue is to be genuine and curious and friendly. And that part of like, I want to understand where you're coming from. You know, I don't agree with you and that's okay, but I just want to understand where you're coming from. And I think when, when we talk to, um, to Philip from Alberta, right? Like there was that moment where he was like, okay, well, I, I, yeah, I get it. There's problems with, with this industry, but there's no perfect solution outside the industry, right? A lot of times there's a lot more nuanced common ground than people realize mm-hmm. because what happens is the online environment is so toxic, so black and white, and, and it's giving us a very distorted perception of reality. Yeah. Lots of good advice there, Laura, and I will come back to you uh, at least one more time before the bottom of the hour. Uh, Laura Cavanaugh is a psychotherapist and a professor at Seneca College. Let me go to some of the uh, replies, well, some of the social media reaction we've had to the show. It's interesting. I sent out the tweet that I normally send out, or X post, I guess, on Saturday with a preview of the topic of the program, which is what should we do about polarization in Canadian politics. Got some good replies, but one person said something like, don't be stupid. <laughs> and then went on to give me some advice on what we should talk about. And I thought, yeah, what an interesting starting point for a reply. Uh, Sal Spera, uh, Spatafora uh, replied on X to my post. He said, it's challenging to have rational discourse with the tribal nature of our dualistic political spectrum. You are with us or against us, left or right. If you try to engage in rational discussion of issues, I find personal insults fly by the third sentence from both sides, which uh, I feel that way too, Sal. And uh, as Laura points out, uh, social media is probably not the best place to go, I am learning, to uh, to try to get to the bottom of an issue or debate an issue. Uh, Lynn says via X slash Twitter, we need a government that's responsive to Canadians, not to their own ideological agenda. People feel they're not listened to, not supported financially, i.e. ever increasing taxes, refusal to pause or axe the tax, and lack of real concern over the affordability crisis. And Thomas Braun via cbc.ca slash aircheck says, I'm frustrated by our federal politicians making every issue partisan or politicized. A coalition of minds might more quickly and economically solve some important issues. The constant American-style election cycle, mostly from the Conservative Party, slows progress, wastes money, and contributes to voter disengagement. And as I think you heard in those last two comments, you can, I think, tell the political perspectives of the people who make it. Um, And so sometimes the feeling about polarization depends on your starting point in terms of your own uh, political thoughts. Our number here is 1-888-416-8333. Just before I go back to the phones on this topic, a reminder, our AMA is coming up in just over 10 minutes. We have a former Canadian ambassador to Israel who has read up on the International Court of Justice's interim uh, decision that they handed down on Friday regarding South Africa's claim that uh, Israel is practicing genocide. And uh, and if you have any questions about what the International Court of Justice said on Friday and what comes next, uh, you can use that same number, 1-888-416-8333 to get in the queue to ask questions in our AMA. But let's continue with our topic, our main topic of this week on polarization. Elizabeth Booth is in Calgary. Hi, Elizabeth. 
Hello. How do you feel about polarization in, in sort of your, your day-to-day life? Is it, is it something you're running up uh, against and is it a problem? Oh, absolutely. And I, I find it exhausting, mm-hmm. <laughs> to be honest. But what, what I wanted to talk about is I feel like a lot of these, these topics, especially the ones that fall more on the, you know, sort of social and cultural side of things, a lot of people look at them as abstract arguments, you know, things to debate, things to sort of fight about, sort of sometimes forgetting that all politics are personal to someone. So some some of these topics are, you know, there's other real people at the other end who are listening to these debates and thinking you're talking to me about our sorry about me and, mm-hmm. and it's harmful. Um, I, I'm, I'm a parent of a, for example, a, a non-binary teen who is, you know, a normal, wonderful kid and hearing, you know, sort of their right to their identity being, um, argued, you know, almost like a uh, political football is it's, it's hard to listen to. So I think sometimes bringing, reminding people that, that this is about people and there are people at the other end of these arguments is, Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important. Yeah. And so I don't even know how to ask this question because I, I I was going to say, you know, what about people who, who actually want to have a, a, a conversation or debate that let's say your family might find, um, not helpful, but but I mean, you know, th- there is no debate or discussion that would be fair that questions, you know, the existence and the and the sort of outlook of your teenager. So I'm just, but I'm just trying to think, like, are there are there situations where where you try to you, where you want to shut down a, a, de- a conversation that somebody's having because they have a different point of view? Well, you know, I, I do think people, I, I understand that people, a lot of them don't understand like mm-hmm. this particular topic, for example. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's important for them to ask questions and do some reading. But I think people have to be careful, too. I mean, yeah. we have one example where our family was eating in a restaurant once and a, a family at table over. We're having a very loud debate over whether or not non-binary pronouns should should exist. Mm-hmm. And I could I could just see my kid shrinking into their chair. So I think people have to be careful about yeah. having these really loud debates when, when it is matters of people's identity and, and who they are. Because um, I, I don't think we would have those kind of discussions loudly about race, necessarily, mm-hmm. hopefully, or, um, or some other things. So I, I, I feel like, you know, people should just maybe maybe think about who might be listening and if it could be harmful for them. Yeah, I mean, we have had those conversations about race in this country, um, and uh, very similar situations. I'm, I, I can tell you, you know, at, mm-hmm. in public in public places where you overhear things that you think, hmm, you know, I want to go over there and be involved in that conversation. Anyway, um, that's interesting, Elizabeth. And so maybe a last word from you on, I mean, you've already said like the key point, which is very uh, well said, is is people need to be thinking about who might be listening and what impact it may have on them. But beyond that, when it comes to maybe moving it out of uh, the realm of of the issue of of people who identify as non-binary, what can we do to be less polarized or what should we be doing to have difficult conversations? Yeah, I, I think it's just bringing it back to, am, is this something that actually concerns me? Is it something that's a real problem for me? Or is it just an academic, you know, abstract discussion? If you're mm-hmm. just arguing about things for the sake of arguing, 
you know, m- maybe there's there's better better ways <laughs> to yep. spend your time and just and I I think to bringing you know sometimes when these when these arguments come up to bring in the fact that it is personal to some people I think that can diffuse it sometimes you know I've seen it in my own family when they they realize that this this thing you know this topic that might be of concern to them is just it is affecting somebody that they know and love. I think mm-hmm. it can kind of break things down a little bit. Good. Elizabeth, thank you very much for calling. I appreciate it. Thanks. Let's go to Kelowna, British Columbia now. Uh, Celia Brown-Clayton is calling. Hi, Celia. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good. So what are you seeing and what are you thinking in terms of polarization? I've had this discussion, oh, like so many times in the past, probably two or three weeks. <laughs> but the latest was this morning with my mom on our walk. Um, but I do feel like what's lacking is like, you know, Socrates would go into a conversation knowing that he didn't know always, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. one of the most learned men in history, right? But he'd go in there thinking, I can learn something from this person and maybe they can learn something from me. And I'm, I try as an individual to always have that open mind. I'm not going to agree with everyone. Um, they're not going to agree with me. I never go in trying to like, change someone's mind, just like tell them my perspective on things. But I also know that every side, quote unquote, has their side for a reason, right? There's humans behind those ideas. And all of those humans have different backgrounds, different experiences, and a different perspective Mm -hmm. that I can learn from. And why we've turned into this very polarized place where the left and the right have now like turned to look at each other almost like an enemy, right? Like we're like, if this is mine versus yours and there's almost a fear of releasing some of your ideology and learning from the other side, because it means maybe losing your position in your group, right? Like your identity. I mean, I, I appreciate that point of view. It's a very wise kind of uh, compassionate point of view. But Celia, you must have had situations where the person you disagree with, you're convinced is wrong, right? And that you just think oh, like they're, yeah. So how do you deal with that? Totally. I will say, <laughs> I will say it was, it's been many times where I'm convinced they're wrong. And one time in particular, I love him very much, but my now gone grandfather. We were in India and he mm-hmm. he was he was there during the war and so we had a very long time ago different perspective, different people treated him with a, a bit more like like I don't know what it was <laughs> differently mm-hmm. than when mm-hmm. I went there when I was sixteen. I was very angry with him because he was I I knew what he was saying was like I mean it it was awful to me mm-hmm. and it took me a very long time to come to terms with he is coming at it from like a place of not, not knowing, right? Mm-hmm. Like he was from a different era. He had a different experience. His culture taught him something different and he worked through it, right? Mm-hmm. Like we had that very, those very difficult discussions and, but I had to release my immediate reaction of being like, angry. And yeah. that was not easy to do as a 16 year old. And it's not easy to do as a 46 year old now, mm-hmm. right? Like I have people that I love that don't have the same perspective on many things, right? Yeah, Lots of different LGBTQ ideas. 
uh, lots of these, like so many different yeah. topics. Well, you sound <laughs> very, are, I'm sorry, last, yeah, the last sentence or two, Celia. It's okay. Just, we don't have the same agreement, but I love the person, mm-hmm. right? I love that person. And you don't, what I fear in this society is that we often, like one of your callers said, like, I'm just not following them on Facebook anymore or, and, and I get it. But I also think the more we isolate ourselves from people, we have more in common than we have not in common. Mm-hmm. And the very loud, uncommon things are often the things that we're like shutting people away from. Yeah. But There's a lot of wisdom. people in, are still... Yeah good people. Yeah. A lot of wisdom in what you're saying and the idea that we have more in common, much more in common than we don't is uh, exactly, as I said earlier in the program, what Ed Broadbent said, whose uh, state funeral uh, has been underway this afternoon and is the the inspiration really uh, for our topic. So thank you very much for calling. All right. Thank you. Take care. Uh, reminder, our AMA begins in a couple of minutes, and we're talking about the International Court of Justice's interim decision on South Africa's claim that Israel is practicing genocide in uh, Gaza. And we have a former uh, ambassador from Canada to Israel to answer your question. So you can give us a call now for the AMA, one 416 or go to cbc.ca aircheck. But before we end the main portion of the show, let's go back one last time to Laura Kavanaugh, a practicing psychotherapist and professor of psychology. And Laura, we only have about a minute and a half, but uh, maybe, well, whatever, wherever you want to take this in terms of last words on our topic of polarization. Yeah, so I I just have a couple of things that have come up, you know, Mm -hmm. and I want to say that, first of all, the work of depolarizing is absolutely actually aligned with the um, act of political activism. And in fact, like passion and a desire to depolarize the conversation and to have conversations at all are not incompatible at all. And in fact, you know, listening to, to some of the things that were said from Ed Broadbent's funeral, like that's a really powerful example of it. You know, when we want to change people's mind, but also when we want to change our society, it comes from connecting, you know, one person at a time. Um, I also heard the term fear come up a lot. And I do think that what happens, and especially when we could get into these real echo chambers, right, is that we we strongly connect, you know, our political identity is an important part of our identity, right? And and that's that's actually a good thing. You know, that is what makes us passionate and 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 civically engaged. But it's also important to remember that like um, you know, the Freud said, like, the ego fears its own death, right? So the ego does like, we want to hear more that confirms what we already believe. That gives us a dopamine rush. That's like an evolutionary biology reaction. And when we hear things that are differing from our points of view, um, it lights up the punishment part of our brain. It's actually quite challenging for us. Hmm. And so we really have to deliberately kind of seek it out, right? And, and to trust that, like, what they found from actually um, uh, a social psychologist-led encounter group in the U.S. is that when groups on the people on the left and people on the right have encounters in groups, they really, really enjoy it. And their views don't really change, but they see each other differently. And that what 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 gets left behind is that polarization, that demonization, that vilification. And so I think sometimes we're almost afraid, maybe even unconsciously, to expose ourselves to inter, uh, information that's that's challenging and that does that conflicts with our our, our points of view. Because mm-hmm. we're like, I, I'll lose who I am, I'll lose my sense of self. Hmm. But I think you can trust that even these like quite intensive encounter groups, that's not what happens. It's not about making people moderate. It's about making people able to collaborate and able to have conversation without demonizing one side or the other. A nice way to end this portion of the conversation, Laura. Thank you very much, not only for those insights, but also for giving us your time on this Sunday afternoon. 
Thanks so much for having me, Ian. Laura Cavanaugh, a practicing psychotherapist and a professor of psychology and behavioral sciences at Seneca College. It's time for Ask Me Anything on the International Court of Justice decision on genocide. This is a historic day. Palestine welcomes the momentous order by the International Court of Justice. Israel's commitment to international law is unwavering. Equally unwavering is our sacred commitment to continue to defend our country and defend our people. I think in a sense, all parties got something they wanted. Israel did not want a ceasefire to be ordered. And of course, South Africa wanted the case to proceed through uh, the International Court of Justice system, and and it got that. On Friday, the International Court of Justice made an interim ruling ordering Israel to take a series of emergency measures to prevent genocide in Gaza as it carries out its military operation against Hamas. The court did not order a ceasefire, as requested by South Africa. The court also urged Hamas to release hostages it's been holding since that attack on October the 7th. The interim ruling by the ICJ is part of a larger case brought forward by South Africa, which accuses Israel of committing genocidal acts. Israel has rejected that allegation, saying its actions in Gaza are based on self-defense and are necessary to root out Hamas. Now, to be clear, it's expected to take years for the ICJ to reach its final decision. But today we're going to focus on what emergency measures have been ordered and how it could affect Israel and Gaza in the days and weeks ahead. John Allen is a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He also served as Canada's ambassador to Israel from 2006 to 2010. He's here live to take your calls and answer your questions. You can ask him anything on this topic. Our number is one 888 416-8333. You can also text a question, 226-758-8924. John, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so very important conversation and nice to have an expert like you who can guide us through it. Let, let's begin with what this interim ruling on Friday said. What, what was determined here? Well, um, first of all, um, there was... Uh, a finding of a plausibility of genocide, not a finding of genocide, which, as you said, will take years, but this prima facie case in in sort of domestic Canadian legal terms, that it's possible, nothing more than that. But the implication of that is that the court accepted um, Israel's case of the necessity of self-defense. Um, Then the question becomes, in their actions of self-defense, did they go so far as to be accused of genocide? I think we have to remember here that um, the International Court of Justice only deals with genocide. It doesn't deal with lesser crimes of crimes against humanity and um, war crimes. So, Though that was the initial finding. Um, and then uh, essentially the court said that Israel, because of this plausibility, should be doing what it can to protect civilians from harm. Implication being they're not doing enough right now. And uh, there was a finding, an order that they should increase humanitarian assistance. This is despite the fact that Israel has said that they're doing everything they can. 
um, there was actually a, a, a determination that there was a catastrophic humanitarian situation in Gaza, the implication being that Israel is in fact not doing enough. And um, uh, then there was a, a finding that Israel should uh, do what it can to prevent and punish incitement to genocide. There were comments, um, not by ministers in the war cabinet, but by the chief of staff and by other ministers in the cabinet and others in Israel that sounded like incitement to genocide. Um, and the the court recognized that and uh, and told um, Israel that it should uh, it should stop that, punish it uh, where possible. Finally, um, as you mentioned, um, there was a, a realization that uh, the hostages had been taken and should be released. And then there was a requirement that Israel had to report back in a month. Uh, so, Israel is going to have to decide what it um, wants to do in order to comply with uh, these various orders, report back, and uh, and then the court will decide uh, whether it, it has indeed complied uh, with its request. That is such a comprehensive and clear description of uh, what the International Court of Justice said on Friday, we are here live with John Allen, a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, also a former Canadian ambassador to Israel. And he's here on Cross Country Checkup to ask answer any questions you have on that ICJ process. Our number is one 416 8333 You can also text questions to 226 758 8924. No question is too simple. Uh, this is exactly why we're doing this, because a lot of people hear the headline, the news rolls by really quickly, and we have an opportunity to slow down and, and, and take a look at this and, and, uh, and answer your questions on it. Uh, John, I'm sure there are a lot of people who don't really understand the International Court of Justice and wonder what kind of power does it have? So it's made these these interim findings. It's required Israel to report back in a month. Uh, what what power, enforcement power is there behind that? Well, good question. Um, now, the International Court of Justice uh, takes cases state to state. So we have a case with South Africa bringing a case against Israel. Um, the court itself does not have enforcement powers. It makes its ruling. Countries have agreed to be bound by it. Um, and like most of international law, there is a, uh, a legal obligation, a moral obligation to comply, but no enforcement. But there is enforcement in the sense that the court is a UN body and matters that it decides can be referred to the United Nations Security Council, which does have enforcement powers. So, uh, hypothetically, um, a, a Israel decides not to do anything, um, claims that it's already uh, complying with these orders, South Africa or another country could suggest that the UN Security Council should consider whether there's been a violation of the orders, non-compliance, and the Security Council could take enforcement measures. Now, uh, I think it's highly unlikely that they would because the United States is a permanent member, has a veto, 
And the United States has already um, suggested that um, this case, if not frivolous, is inappropriate and um, that there's no question that uh, Israel's not committed genocide. So mm -hmm. I, I have the impression they would probably veto an effort to uh, impose sanctions, for example. We are live here on Cross Country Checkout's Ask Me Anything, speaking with John Allen, a former Canadian ambassador to Israel. Our number is 1-888-416-8333, or you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck if you have a comment or a question. Great opportunity to ask somebody who's an expert in this field about uh, the International Court of Justice interim decision that came out on Friday. And uh, John, here's a question that uh, I feel like callers probably will have, but I'll preempt it because I'm quite curious about the answer to this. Um, I, I, we were waiting for Canada's reaction to this interim ruling and the Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, did issue a statement on Friday. I don't have it in front of me, but as I remember it, uh, she said that Canada is a supporter of the International Court of Justice process, does not believe that Israel is guilty here of genocide, will wait for the final uh, determination here. What wasn't clear to me in their statement is what action, if any, Canada might take at this step with this interim ruling. And I wonder, as a former diplomat, as an expert in this field, do you feel like this ruling places any duty or obligation on Canada? No, I don't think so yet. I think there might be uh, an obligation if uh, Israel were to ignore the order completely, do nothing, uh, or say that it was improper, um, etc. Um, for example, um, if there was no increase in humanitarian assistance, if a number of uh, Israeli ministers made uh, inappropriate statements that continued uh, to look like incitement, um, I think, uh, you know, then Canada uh, could, should, and, and could uh, speak out publicly, uh, criticize Israel for that. Um, you know, I, I realize there are uh, calls for uh, sanctions or calls to uh, prohibit exports of weapons. Uh, Canada actually exports very few weapons to Israel, but it does. So those are things that Canada could do. Um, but I tend to think that Israel will try and comply, will say that they've complied. And um, uh, since there's been no finding of genocide, there's no obligations uh, on, on Canada in respect of, uh, of that finding right now. John Allen is a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. And John, I think some of the questions that we're going to get uh, will not be directly about the International Court of Justice, but more generally about this part of the country and uh, or the, the, the world. And uh, and I know you you can uh, sort of field some of those. And and for example, here's a question from a caller who didn't want us didn't want to be on the air, but th they had this question: With the war in Ukraine, they evacuated most of the women and children. Um, why couldn't civilians be moved out of harm's way like other conflicts? John? Well, um, it's a very complicated question. Um, first of all, um, Israel did say initially that um, the Gazans, the Palestinians in Gaza, should move from the north to the south because Israel was going to begin bombing and using artillery in the north. 
Um, so there was uh, an effort to uh, move them out of harm's way. Um, many people were nonetheless killed, and uh, and we have seen, unfortunately, a situation where, despite the fact that people have moved to the south, there's been bombing artillery in the south, and people have had to move again farther south, etc. Um, but there's also another problem in that Palestinians do not want to leave Gaza. Um, there's a history um, that um, they call the Nakba, when in 1948, uh, Israel uh, was created by partition um, and Arab states attacked. And in the course of that war, um, 750,000 Palestinians either uh, ex were expelled or left voluntarily or left because of fear. And um, Palestinians don't want to leave because they're afraid that they won't be able to get back into Gaza if they did. And so um, they're, they and Israel are caught in between a rock and a hard place in that regard because uh, Gaza is a very small very built up urban area. And if you're going to fight a war there, a lot of people are going to be killed and injured, uh, as we've seen. It is our Ask Me Anything, and we're talking to John Allen, who's a former Canadian ambassador to Israel between 2006 and 2010. And our phone number is 1-888-416-8333. Mark Arnold is calling from Toronto. Hi, Mark. Hi, good evening. How are you? I'm, I'm well. If I'm reading these notes correctly, it says, uh, Mark, you're an international human rights lawyer? In, in, indeed, I am. Uh -huh. uh, the Canadian government has recently taken Iran to the International Court of Justice on the shooting down of Flight PS752. It's a claim that what happened was a terrorist act. Your uh, guest tonight said, and I hope, I don't know if I heard it correctly or not, that the ICJ only deals with genocide. Did I hear that correct? And if I did, then I have concerns that our government has tried to take Iran on issues of terrorism to the ICJ. John? Well, what, what I was saying was that in, in this case, it's not dealing with crimes against humanity and war crimes, which are lesser crimes. Uh, there are other conventions that the ICJ can uh, discuss. There is a convention against um, terrorism against aircraft. And given that um, states are parties to that convention, the ICJ could deal with that. But in, in this case, which where we're talking about accusations against Israel for uh, overstepping humanitarian law, it's only genocide where both Israel and South Africa are parties uh, that uh, they can deal with. Mark, do you have a follow-up? Yes, to clarify, you are saying that the ICJ does have jurisdiction over terrorism with respect to aircraft, so that our government in Canada is not offside in trying to go to the ICJ on the PS752 right. matter. Sure, and they have uh, they have jurisdiction over terrorism against uh, maritime security uh, and and other conventions in, in that regard. All right, right. Mark, I understand. Thank you. 
Yeah, thank you very much for the call, Mark. Uh, this is Cross Country Checkup. We're live with our Ask Me Anything, and we are looking at the uh, International Court of Justice interim decision that came out on Friday regarding South Africa's claim that Israel is practicing, practicing genocide. There was no final determination on that. And uh, our guest, John Allen, a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, is here to answer your questions at one 888 416 Ed... Uh, Brunier, how do you pronounce your last name, Ed? Brunier. Okay. Uh, Brunier, call- like the hair color, Brunier. Okay, <laughs> excellent. Uh, calling from Sudbury. And what's your question yeah. for John Allen, Ed? Yes, the the original start of all this, uh, I understand even uh, the parents of Jesus, uh, Joseph and Mary, had conflicts with the Palestine. Like, uh, <clears throat> So, you know... This fight has been on for 2,000, over 2,000 years. So what actually started the conflict? Well, John, uh, that's a big question. How would you like to respond? Yeah, I won't go back um, (laughs) 3,000 or 2,000 years. Um, And in fact, um, I would say that prior to 1948, when the UN partitioned uh, Palestine, uh, then a British uh, protectorate, uh, Arabs and Muslims and Jews actually got along reasonably well. Jews lived in in Morocco, in Tunisia, in Algeria, in Iraq, etc. It was really the creation of the state um, of of Israel um, that um, uh, began uh, the current set of conflicts that we've seen go on since forty eight through sixty seven and seventy three and the Intifadas, etc. And um, Uh, At the time, Israel accepted uh, the UN partition and agreed to uh, the land that it was um, granted. And at the time, the Arab states, there was no Palestinian state. There were four Arab states disagreed and attacked Israel. And uh, that was really, that was the beginning. And um, as I've uh, said uh, for a long time, there's plenty of blame uh, on both sides uh, going forward uh, 75 years later as to why there's still a conflict, but um, hopefully we can we can move to uh, better times, two states for two peoples, and uh, and seeing an end to that conflict. Ed, thank you very much for your question. And John, it's terrific to have an expert that can handle uh, so many of the questions on on this issue. I appreciate it. Our number is 1-888-416-8333. Barbara Lando is calling from Toronto. Hi, Barbara. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. What's your question for John Allen? My question is the criteria set by the International Court of Justice. I thought it was did an excellent job, but they are, the requirements on Israel were important, but quite general. I'm wondering if John could answer, what are some examples of what Israel needs to do to successfully respond to showing sufficient efforts to protect civilians from harm, uh, to improving humanitarian aid, minimizing incitement by their cabinet ministers, and uh, securing a release of hostages. What are some concrete examples that would show that Israel succeeded a month from now? Yeah, what a terrific question, Barbara. Thank you very much. John? Thanks, Barbara. Yeah, I mean, uh, in terms of reducing the deaths and injuries, um, the United States has been uh, demanding that Israel 
uh, reduce the bombing and the artillery and use a much more targeted approach that would minimize civilian deaths and casualties. On the humanitarian front, there's no question that uh, more food, water, medicine, uh, fuel uh, should be coming in uh, to uh, the Gaza Strip. Uh, there was never enough to begin with, and uh, three and a half months into the war, there's a dire need uh, for uh, for that humanitarian assistance, and, and Israel should be relaxing the inspections that they do. They should be opening up all of the crossings. Uh, they have already taken uh, steps to prevent protesters who had had uh, closed one of the uh, one of the crossings. Um, on the prevent and punish uh, incitement, the Attorney General of Israel has already stated uh, immediately after the uh, the case was announced uh, before the decision that she would be taking steps to uh, uh, to prosecute and punish uh, hate and incitement. Um, so that, in a sense, is, has already been done. Um, so I think there are clear, concrete steps that Israel can take and that can be measured and, and that hopefully uh, they will engage in over the next month. Barbara, thank you very much for your question. Let's go to Maria Yolanda Shaw, who is in Thunder Bay. Hi, Maria. Hi. What's your question for John Allen? All right. ICJ required uh, the Israelites to comply with the requirement of preventing incitement of genocide, right? Right. Okay. Now, so then if I were Benjamin Netanyahu, I would say no one is above the rule. Everyone should follow the same rule and comply. That means Hamas publicly claim they're after the the Israelites, that's why they did the attack on October 7th, genocide. They want to eliminate the Israelites. Therefore, everyone should rally to prevent Hamas from doing that, not just against the Israelites, because they want genocide against the Israelites, but also implicitly, they also is committing genocide against the Palestinians by using them as human shields. And so what's your question for John, Maria? So then shouldn't, uh, I, I'm just saying, it doesn't sound logical. Like now the, the Israelites is in a position to say, all my allies, all the people around the world, including the South African, why are they just going after us to comply uh, to prevent incitement of genocide? They should also hold the Hamas, like responsible, and they should also comply with that, that the Hamas should comply. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. now, okay. Wh okay. Why just yeah. go after the Israelites? Because the Hamas is doing genocide against the Israelites, and they're right. implicitly yeah. and, and indirectly committing genocide against okay. the Palestinians. Yeah. Okay, Maria, thank you very much for the question. Uh, John, we have about two minutes, uh, but uh, please respond. Yeah, so very quickly, um, the International Court of Justice only deals with states. Unfortunately, it doesn't deal with a terrorist group or a terrorism of this nature. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it can't um, uh, sanction uh, a non-state actor, which is Hamas. I agree with you that um, what uh, Hamas did 
uh, and their uh, constitution talks about the uh, elimination and the annihilation of Israel. And if it were a state, it would represent uh, genocide and they too uh, would be sanctioned. But unfortunately, um, uh, the, the, the situation is that Israel, even if it has a right to self-defense, and even it should be can and, and should be doing what it can to prevent this and protect its society, as it goes about exercising that right of self-defense, it still has to um, maintain uh, international law in its efforts. It still has to operate within, within international humanitarian law, not committing genocide, not committing uh, war crimes or crimes against humanity, even if it's against a non-state actor like Hamas. So you're right, Israel's in a in a bit of a bind. And I also agree with you that Hamas is using uh, its own Palestinian citizens as human shields. It seems to have no regard for the fact that 25,000 of them have been killed, uh, nor did it when it uh, when it massacred um, the number of Israelis uh, that it did, uh, 2,200, uh, on October the 7th. But we're operating in a state-to-state -state, uh, situation, and um, and Israel is being held to account for its actions in that regard. All right, Maria, thank you very much for your question. And John, I have to say, I very much appreciate your very measured and uh, uh, evidence-based answers. It's uh, It's been nice to speak to you today. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Appreciate it. John Allen, a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He also served as Canada's ambassador to Israel from 2006 to 2010. That's it for Check Up, the podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Check Up's live broadcast on CBC Radio from January 28, 2024. If you'd like to share comments or appear on the show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks to everyone who helped this week. Our phone screeners are Drew Stewart and Chloe Kim. Our TV team, Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, Brendan Sylvia, Jennifer Colarusso, and Richard Grundy. Technical production and editing from Will Yar and Matthias Wilson. Our program assistant is Hannah Abrahamsey. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Ruksara Lee. Abby Plenner, and Rachel DeGasperis. Our digital producer is Sinisha Yolich. The senior producer, Steve Howard. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. The next edition of Check Up the Podcast will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.